As you're returning, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Malachi chapter 1. I want us to think carefully as we look at these five verses and, and really go through an introduction of who Malachi is, the people that he's writing to, uh, the context of what's going on here. This question, how has God loved you? They asked that question early on, and I think it requires a deeper answer than we are used to giving. If I was to ask that question, uh, perhaps on the Thanksgiving time around the table, go around and tell us how God has loved you, uh, everybody would come up with something. But would it be what God is getting to when He speaks to the people in Israel. This is, this is a deep question. And it is a great pronouncement that God makes. And I hope we can see uh, the depth of it. And we begin to understand more the great riches and the glory and the love of God. That's one thing that the Malachi is impressing upon us. Is who is this God? What does He do? How does He love us? And how do we respond? You see, the book of Malachi occupies a place and a time in the Bible like no other. It is the very last word spoken by Yahweh, the Lord, to the inhabitants of this planet. The very last word spoken by God to the inhabitants of this planet for a 400 year stretch of intentional silence by God. What did God say? Why did He say what he says here. What were the people who heard these words like? Does this message have any relevance to the history that would unfold four centuries later when he speaks again? Is it something we need to hear almost 2,500 years later than 2022? Is God still saying these things? Let's dig into these amazing final words of God in the Old Testament and discover more of the mind and heart of our great Lord God, Yahweh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, it is so exciting every time we venture into a new one of your library books, the books of the Bible, and try to discover what you are saying, who you are. And Lord, we know that unless your spirit moves, uh, we will know nothing. We will understand nothing about you. So we pray and ask you, Lord, to speak to us through your word. Speak through me. Lord, please help me as a very weak messenger. Lord, please speak. Please open our ears, stopped ears, hard ears, ears that are muffled with the things of this world and our own, our own desires. Maybe we've even been offended. Maybe we've been arrogant. Lord, please Zero us in, crystallize us into the word tonight or this morning. And let us see you, know you. Amen. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The burden. The burden. The book of Malachi announces itself as the burden. Sometimes it is translated as the oracle of the word of the Lord. This means the message of the prophet Malachi is a deep and it is a heavy weight. It is a burden on the heart of the prophet, Malachi. It is a heavy weight cast upon the ears of the hearers. 
And it is a burden that is of the word of the Lord. What gives heaviness to Malachi's prophecy is that it is a burden of the word of the Lord. Uh, when I was young, I got a, a set of weights for Christmas uh, when I was about 14. And, and in those days, all the weights were little plastic discs filled with something that made them heavy. Uh, they weren't heavy themselves, but because of what they contained, they might be 15, 20, 30 pounds. The oracle, the burden of the word of the Lord is heavy because it is filled with the word of the Lord. What Malachi is saying is engrossed and it's filled. It is made up of what God says. Malachi relies repeatedly on God's law throughout his oracle. It is the constant standard to which he points Israel to over and over again. In Malachi 2 verses 6 through 7. We read the law of truth was in his mind. It was in his mouth. And injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity. And turned away, many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. And the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3, 7. Yet from the days of our fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances. And have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4, 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel's, with the statutes and with judgments. We go to the disputes that we will see throughout this book. All centered about things that God had commanded them to do. The weight of the word of the Lord. Malachi 1, 6-14. Malachi convicts Israel of breaking God's law concerning pure and undefiled offering. Malachi 2, 1-9. Of the perversion of the God-ordained priestly office and the rejection of God's covenant. Malachi 2, 10-16. Israel's unfaithfulness with God and their intermarriage and idolatry with idolatrous nations. It is exposed as being against the word of the Lord. Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 5. Israel is mocking what they call injustice by the holy righteous God. <clears throat> Malachi 3, 6 through 12. God charges Israel with apathy toward true worship and neglecting to give their commanded tithe to support the priests and the maintenance of the temple. And then the final straw. Listen to this. The final straw in Malachi 3, 13 through 18. Yahweh exposes Israel's faithless heart. They say, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. The oracle of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was shattered by Israel. God's laws and statutes have been cast away completely. God sends this burden of the word of the Lord through Malachi to call Israel to repent and return to him. That is the message of this book. But even heavier than the burden and more important than the word of the Lord is the great author and authority of the book, Yahweh himself. The word of the Lord. His name, his name is 
plastered all over this book. 21 times the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, is declared. 24 times He is declared as Yahweh Sabaoth. It's the name, the Lord of hosts, who commands all His forces throughout the heavens and on earth. 24 times. He is addressed as Adonai, the Supreme Lord, four times. He is Elohim, the Mighty God, five times. And he's even called Melech Gadol, the great king in Malachi 1 through 14. And beyond his name is his presence. Yahweh is active and intimate with his people throughout the book of Malachi. He loves in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. He hates in chapter 1 and 2. He is angry. He is wearied. He has pleasure and displeasure. He threatens. He blesses. And God curses. And we see that this burden is not streamed down through the clouds by Yahweh. He has a messenger through Malachi or by the hand of Malachi. Now the description of Yahweh, as we've seen, is, is all over the place. Named in various ways over and over again. The timing of the book, we will see, is reliably clear. The condition and identity of the audience is recorded well throughout history. But... The word Malachi is another matter. Malachi translates as my messenger. So the question is, is Malachi a title, my messenger, like words like a scribe, a king, the Pharaoh, or is it actually a proper name like Bob or Steve or Joe? Well, the handful of commentators that, that I read were in favor of Malachi being this messenger's actual proper name. And it's for these three reasons. The name is similar in how other prophetic books refer to their author's actual name. Several of the, the prophetic books do it the same way that Malachi does here. So there is a precedent set. Secondly, Verhoff, one of the uh, commentators, said when the Hebrew expression for by or through, by Malachi or through Malachi... When that expression is used to indicate a human instrument of God's revelation, it is normally followed by a proper name. Like Moses, like Isaiah, like Elijah, like Malachi. And thirdly, Malachi has been recognized as the prophet's proper name in a number of ancient manuscripts, some dating from the 2nd century A.D. So we can feel fairly confident Malachi is the prophet's name. He is also the messenger of God. But beyond that, we know nothing about this man. His name is not mentioned it again, is not mentioned again in all of Scripture. You can do a search for it. It will show it in this verse and this verse alone. Now we move on with that first verse. This is an oracle to Israel. Israel is the clear target audience of this heavyweight declaration. So why such a strongly worded denouncement from God? Why so many antagonistic disputes between Yahweh and the people of Israel? What have they done? What are they thinking? Well, let's look at the people and their timing to begin with. There are books of prophecy in the Old Testament that are difficult to date as to precisely when they took place. The timing of Malachi is not. The ten northern tribes of the divided kingdom of Israel had fallen to Assyria in 722 B.C. 
That is meant. In 722 B.C. That is about 300 years before the time of Malachi. Judah was more faithful to Yahweh than Israel. But within 100 years, their rebellion and their idolatry cost their, them their freedom as well. By 586 B.C., Judah was completely overthrown with the fall of the city of Jerusalem in July of that year and the complete destruction of the fabulous temple of God built by Solomon one month later. Tens of thousands of Jews were taken captive as slaves were brought back to Babylon in what history calls the Babylonian exile. The capital city of Jerusalem lay in complete ruins and the land was devastated. But by 539 B.C., God's own chosen man of the hour, Cyrus, king of Persia, defeats the Chaldeans and gains control of Babylon. As part of Cyrus's goodwill campaign among the conquered people, he initiated the return of Judah to their homeland and even financially supported the rebuild of the temple. By the next year, Zerubbabel leads the first caravan of 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem. He is the newly appointed governor of Judah, along with the help of Joshua, the high priest. Then in 536 B.C., the temple rebuild starts and is finally completed 20 years later in 516 B.C., the second temple, the replacement temple. Now in 458 B.C., Ezra leads a second wave of, of Jews back to Jerusalem. And this is over 40 years after the first wave. Then 13 years later, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah leads the third and final wave of refugees from Babylon back to Judah. Now, what in the world does that have to do with the date of Malachi, you may be thinking? It's a good question. But when Malachi prophesied in this book, the reconstructed temple has been built and offerings and sacrifices have been offered for many years. We will read about that in Malachi 1 verse 13. This means that Malachi existed well after the 516 date here of the completion of the temple. It's been up and operating for quite some time. Malachi chapter 1 verse 8 mentions a civil governor. Since Nehemiah was the last of the civil governors mentioned, Malachi was prophesying prior to his death, sometime at least before 400 B.C., and we will say even before 424 B.C. But the real clincher in this is that the offenses that Malachi rebukes throughout his book are the exact same ones that Nehemiah faced and corrected when he returned from Babylon in 424 B.C. You will read about those offenses in Nehemiah chapter 13 and 10 and you compare them. The offenses included that there was a dead formal religion. They practiced but there was no heart. Secondly, there were mixed marriages and resulting idolatry from neighboring peoples. And thirdly, they were neglecting the tithe and supporting the temple. So the consensus for most scholars is that Malachi prophesied during this brief eight-year window between the time that Nehemiah served and then headed back to Persia 
and then returned a second term as governor. So Malachi fits right in this group from 433 to 425 B.C. But what was at the heart of the people? What is in their soul at this time? If you were alive, if you were alive at this moment in the type of Jerusalem, you would be going through some very, very tough times. On this slide, geographically, we have a prophecy from Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, that says, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Israel never occupied this much space. Perhaps they will at some time, but they never did. Instead, they occupied during the reign of King David and King Saul, this area right in here. Now as you can see, the promised area from Genesis 15 is about the size of the great state of Texas. But this is what ended up being Israel at that time. And here you have a picture of 11th century B.C. Israel. Israel, a nation of God, at that time contained 13,000 square miles. But by the time of Malachi, it had dwindled to a small territory of 600 square miles. A 20 by 30 mile parcel in comparison. That, men and women, is half the size of Sedgwick County. That's what Israel had become. Now, that's size, population. The figure from David's census, recorded in 600, 600 years prior to Malachi, was 1,300,000 males above the age of 20. This can imply about 5 million total people filling the land of Israel. In the book of Malachi, 600 years later, in 425 B.C., that great population has declined by 97%. It is now about 150,000 total men, women, and children. Economically, Judah is struggling. They're in the midst of a devastating drought and deep poverty. Politically, they are no longer a kingdom. They are subservient to the whims of Persia. Security... Security is a constant fear because of the threats of aggressive neighboring countries on every side around them. These neighbors on each side are equally if not better equipped for battle than this poor struggling country of Judah. Spiritually, well that's what we will discover over the next several weeks. Who are these people? Why do they challenge Yahweh their God with such bold audacity? What do they not see about themselves? What does the Lord God say and do and require of them? Who is this people and who is this Yahweh Sabaoth that so faithfully and confrontationally enters their lives? The question is, are we them? Is Yahweh our Lord God Almighty? The, the commentator Verhoff wrote, The book of Malachi delves into matters that are fundamental for all time and therefore conveys an important message even to us and our generation. Verse 2, Malachi chapter 1 begins with this wonderful statement. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
Yet, you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved. We deal here beginning with the doubting of Yahweh's love. The doubting of Yahweh's love. I love, says the Lord. It's the Hebrew word ahab. And it has a very broad meaning of affections. As one theological word book describes it, it is the intensity of the meaning ranges from God's infinite affection for His people to the carnal appetite of a lazy glutton. It just is something that you want, something you desire, depending on the context, how it's used. In Malachi, we see it as the active, choosing love of God. Ahab is demonstrated again at the time of exodus of God's people out of Egypt. There we read in Deuteronomy 4. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he does what? He chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. God's love is not about an ishigushi uh, feeling type of a thing. It is always seen in very concrete action upon his people. Again in Deuteronomy 7, 8, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 23, verse 4 and 5, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. And then Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Yahweh declares, I have loved you. It is a past tense and it is accomplished fact. Why though? Why would God love anyone? And why specifically would he love these folks? Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 tells us. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So why does he love them? Why does Yahweh love Israel? Because he chooses to. Now that doesn't make sense for us. We love things because of how they affect us. How, we, how they make us feel. Uh, maybe they strike us as beautiful. Maybe they strike us as something that brings pleasure to us. Whatever it might be. God does not love that way. He chooses to love because he chooses to love. 1 John says, we love him because he first loved us. Romans 9 verse 16. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. Romans 9 11. 
For the children not yet being born. And here we're talking about Jacob and Esau. For the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works but of him who calls. God's statement, I have loved you, is his children's most amazing comfort, confidence, and motivation. But this is not simply a statement of affection from Yahweh. It is a statement of accomplishment. He has loved his people. For God so loved the world. Then you could finish that, couldn't you? That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did God just feel nice towards us? No. He sacrificed his very own son. That could actually literally be translated. I think it it could be said. For this is the way God loves. He gave his only begotten son. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Scripture does not depict a single instance when God loves us because we have done works, shown faith, made sacrifice, lifted praise, or given thanks to Him. Not once does God choose to love a single person because of that performance. Always these are the result of the love of God in a person's life. The result, not the reason for the love that is there from God. But Israel doesn't get it. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Yet, get that, it is an objection. It is a test against God. We are not sure, says the people. And listen to them. Look at us. We are poor. We are hungry. We are in danger. Our land and population have shrunk to practically nothing. The temple we now have is junk compared to Solomon's. And there is no abundance of gold and silver. There is no power and prestige in this little forsaken country. We are under the yoke of an oppressor and the target of all our neighbors. What do you mean I have loved you? At this point, God could have easily said, My, what short memories you have. If you had loved and obeyed as I commanded you, you would not be in this mess. It is your rebellion and idolatry, idolatry that caused all your loss and sorrow. But God does not take that track. I would have. I did that too often as a father. Not understanding the issue, not understanding the people. God knows these people. And he doesn't have to prove to them. He doesn't have to remind them. What does he do? He reminds them of this. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved. But Esau I have hated. I love, says Yahweh. I hate, says Yahweh. Esau, father of your enemy, the Edomites... He was firstborn. He was the one entitled to privilege and honor. He was the one his father loved and favored. But I loved you, Jacob. You are the one 
You are the one that I fulfill my covenant with. You are the one that I continue the royal line through. Before your father Jacob and his twin older brother Esau were ever born, I chose you. Before you had done any good or evil, I chose you. God chose Jacob even knowing what a lying, self-centered scoundrel he would be. I chose you. And the reality for Esau is that I have hated him. Now listen to this. This is tough. But this is truth. Yes, God hates. Not simply passively, but actively hated Esau. God hates evildoers in Psalm 5 verse 6. He says that. He says he hates idolatry in Deuteronomy 12. The intensity of the hatred of God is expressed in Psalm 11.5 where he hates the wicked and the violent. It says with all his soul. Psalm 11.5. Then it goes on. And he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone and burning wind on the wicked. Don't deny the truth here. God, God's hatred is intense and it is terrifying. It was shown on the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, and there is evidence, Yahweh says. Look, I have, verse 3, laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Put it plainly, I have destroyed every inch of his land and his people. When Esau left his father in the homeland and moved by, moved by personal shame or by his father's disapproval, he moved down to Mount Seir. On this map it would be somewhere down in here, actually. Mount Seir. It is a, down past the south of the Dead Sea in the northwest region of Edom. The territory that he and his descendants inhabited was very rough terrain. It was surrounded by mountains everywhere. The destruction Yahweh speaks of is likely the invasion of Edom by the Nabataean Arabs. In the 5th and 6th century BC, the Nabataeans drove almost every single Edomite out of their land, as prophesied by the prophet Obadiah. Edom was ultimately judged because... They cheered on the destruction of Jerusalem in Psalm 137 verse 7. Psalm 137 verse 7 it says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Eden, the day of Jerusalem, those who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. God said He will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Then we find the defiance of Yahweh's will. In Malachi 1 verse 4. We will build, says the man. Verse 4. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished. But we will return and build the desolate places. Man's pride and self-determination. We will return. We will build. The only thing that will be is the emptiness of their claims. Though Edom may make bold claims of restoring the destruction of their cities and lands. The rest of that verse says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down 
They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. That is a very, very, very harsh paragraph. Edom may go beyond talk and they may even rebuild. But whatever they build, God says, I will throw it down. I will literally demolish it. Edom will be utterly desolate is the word. As Isaiah the prophet says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God has dictated that Edom will be destroyed. And they cannot restore, they cannot rebuild. God has spoken. And it says there will not be a temporary incapacity or affliction. Edom will never be restored. The territory of, of wickedness will be the label of their land. And then it says the Lord will have indignation against them. This is an interesting word that God uses of himself. Literally it means foaming at the mouth. God describes his hatred for this people. As he is, if he is foaming at the mouth. It means he abhors them. He is enraged against them. Yes, God hates them. That is a fearful thing. And not just for a moment. It will be forever. The Hebrew word here is olam. It means everlasting, without end. That judgment, that hatred will come upon them for eternity. Brothers and sisters, that's often what we try to explain to people. Because of your sin, because of your rebellion against the authority of God, your unwillingness to depend upon His Son, to realize you are nothing without Him, you will not just have a lousy next several hundred years. You will have a torturous, wrathful, horrendous experience that will never end and will have no relief. That's just the truth. The gospel is so important. Because God hates sin. But he doesn't cast sin into hell. He casts sinners into hell. And we, by God's grace, like these men and women... Many of us are chosen by God to understand the gospel. And just like these folks, it wasn't because of anything we did. We never became close enough for God to say, okay, it's time. No, God pulled some of us out of some of the most pitiful filth and wickedness that anyone could ever imagine. And he made us his righteous sons and daughters. Why or how? Because his son took the filth of our lives upon himself. And he took him his place on that cross willingly because it was his purpose to go there and die the humiliating death that we deserved and be separated from his father so that we could be joined into the kingdom of God. Us most undeserving of all creation that we could be brought in and adopted his very own. Don't be, don't be mis, misunderstanding about the gospel. The good news is great news. But it's far greater as you know what the bad news is. The reality of judgment. 
Then in verse 5, we have the declaring Yahweh magnified. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. What we see here is this love and this hatred of Yahweh shall be undeniable. Israel shall perceive with their eyes, and then they shall proclaim with their mouths the greatness of Yahweh because they see His love that has been placed upon them and the hatred that has been placed upon those who have rejected Him. After the Lord speaks the final words of the book of Malachi, crickets, silence, 400 years of silence from the creator of the earth. It will be four centuries before he will speak again to anyone. His message at the end of that time, his message at the end of that 400 years will not use the written word or the speech of prophets. It will be far superior to electronic media with surround sound audio and 3D full color video. God's message will be of a radically different nature. Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days, spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. That's how He would speak 400 years later. And it would come because of what we read in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, existing eternally as the Son of God, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Did not consider it something he must grasp hold of and not let go and never leave. He did not consider that. Instead, he made himself of no reputation. That's what he did. He took the form of a slave. And he came in the likeness of men and women like us. And he was found in appearance upon this earth when men looked at him as he's just a man. Isaiah tells us there was nothing majestic about him. There was nothing beautiful about him that we would be desired to him. He was a man. But he humbled himself as God. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is how God would speak 400 years after Malachi spoke. Now, if the Lord were to say to you, I have loved you, how would you respond? I'm sure most of us would agree that he has. But, but let me ask you this. How would you answer the question of the Israelites? How has he loved us? How has he loved you? Would it be an answer full of reasons that brothers in North Korean prisons could not use? Would it be full of reasons that a quadriplegic believer unable to move any of their limbs or control their bodily functions could claim? 
Would, would the things you say be something that the poverty-stricken, hunted Christians in Afghanistan w- could not understand? Even this, would your answer even be something that the unsaved and the idolaters could identify with? Think this through. How has God loved you? Dig deeper than you are used to going. Your answer may surprise you. Turn to Romans 8 in closing. We'll begin with verse 31 read through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or persecution? Or distress? Or famine? Or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, Not the present things, not even the things to come, nor height, nor the deepest things, the depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing. This is the love. Explore it, discover it, understand it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. Old and New Testament, Malachi to Romans. Lord, you speak, and they are all connected so fully, focused on who you are. Lord, show us how you love us. Lord, get get me and my brothers and sisters, me, Lord, get me past such surfacy, mundane things that are are good, they are kind, but help us to see what it means to be chosen by God, to be loved by you, when we were anything but lovable. Thank you, Lord, that you would love. Thank you that you would choose many of us. Thank you that you would give us the gospel to share for men's salvation. Please use us this week. Lord, give us a a zeal for you, compassion for you, a (coughs) a great gratefulness and thanksgiving. Be exalted in this city. Lord, as we go out into it as your ambassadors, in your name we pray, amen.